Our scripture reading this morning comes from Paul's second letter to the church in Thessalonica. We'll be reading chapter 3, verses 6 through 18, the end of that chapter. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thanks, Grant, for reading that passage. What a fantastic passage for a final and farewell sermon from a pastor. Like, how do we summarize that? I'm about to leave Okinawa. It's been real being one of your pastors. Don't be a bunch of lazy bums after I'm gone. Like, do some work. The word of the Lord. I really appreciate the way uh, Pastor Vince has framed our series through both letters to the church in Thessalonica. Vince is really going to serve our family well as our lead preaching pastor. Uh, We know that the big idea through all of this letter of 2 Thessalonians has been anticipation. God's people are an anticipating and anticipatory people. Uh, We learned in week number one that we anticipate God's justice, and that's a really good and beautiful thing in our broken world. Justice matters, and injustice is everywhere. But when, when Jesus returns, he will eradicate all of that injustice, all of it, and his kingdom, his forever kingdom, will have be the first in all of history to be one of perfect justice for all people. It will be beautiful. So we anticipate his justice. We anticipate his power over evil, which goes hand in hand with his justice. And last week we learned to anticipate God's faithfulness. And this week we'll learn that as in, there's a way that we're called to live as anticipating people. And that is we, we do work. We view work as a good thing, not a bad thing. I love the Christian worldview. It's superior to any cultural ethic you may have. Most of our culture views work as a bad thing. In Christianity, we know work is a good thing, not a result of the curse. It's pre-curse. It's good. And God calls his family to be about doing good work for his fame and the good of other people. What other kind of family would you rather belong to? It's beautiful. So let's pray, and we'll unpack this text, and we'll get right down to work. 
Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. We long for that perfect kingdom that has, uh, we will see your power over evil and we will see perfect justice for all people. It will be beautiful. So we pray your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth, even as it is in heaven, here in Okinawa, as it is in heaven, here in this room, here in my heart, and here in the hearts of all the people uh, in this room today. Your will be done. Father, we pray that you would, you would feed us today, that you would give our souls the, the nourishment, the daily bread that we need, satisfy us, help us to see ourselves as hungry kids, uh, coming back to a generous Father for more. We pray that you would incline our hearts to forgiveness in the same way that you have so generously forgiven us, that we would extend the same kind of grace and mercy. Father, we pray that you, you know our feet are quick to run away from you. I pray that you would lead us away from that temptation and deliver us from evil for your namesake. And Father, remind us this morning that it's all about your kingdom and your power and your glory so that as people, as your kids, we can be rescued from three of our primary idols, the idol of living to build our own little kingdom, uh, the idol of the perception that we can live under our own power or strength, and the idol of living for our own fame or our own reputation. I pray that you would deliver us from these enslaving and destructive idols and free us into the life of, of the beautiful life of living for your kingdom under and through your power and for your glory. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, so this is a final and farewell sermon for me, but we're here for two more weeks, so we don't have to say any goodbyes today. And kids, talking to you right now, uh, two weeks from now, in between the first and second service, and then at the conclusion of the second service, out on the walkway, just like we did last summer, we will have tables set up with a whole bunch of Blue Seal ice cream, primarily for the kids. Adults, you're welcome to get in the back of the line, and if we have any left, um, you may have some, but it's primarily for the kids. And my son, Owen, buddy, particularly requested a cake, so it's not just Blue Seal ice cream, kids, we'll also have We'll have cake, okay? And Owen's going to be serving the cake. Uh, my family and I will be serving the Blue Seal ice cream, and we'll have a, a little party. So no goodbyes today. We'll do that, we'll that two weeks from now. As I get started, I wanted to ask you a question. When in your lifetime has somebody, a father, a grandfather, it's Mother's Day, a mother, a grandmother, when have they spoken some life-giving words into your life that have stuck with you into your adult years? What, what phrase or word can you recall right now if you were to close your eyes and imagine the voice of a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or a parent, and you can hear those words that still bring just a smile to your face or joy uh, to your soul? <clears throat> For me, though I could choose from a couple examples, I think the most enduring example for me is from my papa. That'd be my paternal grandfather, my dad's dad. We called him Papa growing up. And in his New Englandish, Vermonter kind of accent, he would always say to, say to me, son or Jonathan, uh, you do good work. That was his line. You do good work. 
So if I carried some firewood from outside to his basement or to his wood stove, son, you do good work. If I did the dishes, if I vacuumed, it didn't matter if I scraped the snow and the ice off his windows, windshield, which is like a a July through May thing in Vermont. (laughs) Didn't matter what I did. And looking back now as an adult, I can think, man, most of that time probably was nowhere near good work. But he was speaking words into my soul, almost as if he were speaking them to become true as I grew into into a man. Uh, The most enduring memory for me about my papa speaking those words is one of the times, he had big, lots of yard, lots of yard, this old farm in Vermont. And so he always had riding yard tractors and I loved mowing the yard and I loved yard tractors. And he had this brand new yard tractor. I got on the seat, I'm confidently mowing his yard for him, probably as a 10 year old maybe nine, it was Vermont in the 80s, so maybe even six, who knows. And I confidently drive his brand new tractor into one of the vertical beams supporting his front porch. And riding lawnmowers can go vertical for a few seconds. You just kind of, they're rear wheel drive, they just kind of flip you up. And so I'm lying there pondering what I've just done and staring up at the blue Vermont sky and all of a sudden my papa's face crowds out the Vermont sky and he looks into my eyes and what does he say? Man, son, you do good work. Uh, So even when I mess things up, I mess them up really, really, really good. Uh, So I'll never forget, I'll never forget those words. And as I thought about my final sermon, my farewell sermon to you, in my heart, I really wanted for those words to be the same words that I, I left with you. I didn't want to have to force it, though, and thankfully, God and his kindness, I mean, these, these texts were kind of picked out weeks ago, months ago. Um, this isn't a special sermon because I'm leaving. I, we really believe deeply in uh, having the gospel be the center thing, the word be the center thing, and so this was what was on our schedule anyway, and uh, check this out. This is verse 13 of the chapter that we just, uh, we just read. I think it's on the screen. Maybe not. If not, I can read it for you. It says this. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. That's Paul's way of saying exactly what my papa said. You guys do good work. You do really good work. After I'm gone, please don't grow weary in doing the good work that you have always done. So in the spirit of my papa and in uh, alignment with our passage this morning, our title for today is simply, You Do Good Work. There's your title. And our big idea is thank you for doing good work. Please don't grow weary. I got a little more complex with my outline for today. Here it is. Uh, First, thank you for doing good work. And number two, please don't grow weary. I sent it to some of my Marine friends. I'm like, will this work for the, you know, Marine Corps? uh, Like, will it pass the test? Like, yeah, that ought to do. That ought to do. So thank you for doing good work, and please don't grow weary. Let's take an overview of this passage, and then we'll work through uh, those two points of our, of our outline. So we already kind of saw the big idea right in the center uh, of this passage, or the concern that Paul had. It's found in verse 11. Paul writes, we hear that there are some, that word some is important, he's not indicting the entire church family, we'll see that in a little bit, it was just some, it was a small minority. But there were some people in the church family 
who were walking in idleness in the New Testament, walk. If you're new to the Bible, walk's just another word for live. Uh, So it was a way of life. They're living an idle life, walking in idleness. Not a little play on words here, not busy at work, but busy bodies. So walking in idleness, uh, a life of laziness, a life of entitlement, a life of leisure, Uh, but not a life of work, not busy at work, but busy bodies. So if they were busy bodies, we could understand that as too busy watching other people to be working for the good of other people. Like too busy up in the business of others to be about their own business. Like Jesus said, I got to be about my father's business, doing my father's work and working for the good of others. So too busy minding the business of other people Uh, So they didn't have the capacity to be busy about their father's work, living for his fame and the good of others. Too busy uh, watching, maybe too too busy scrolling to be too busy um, serving, Um, too busy binge watching to too busy to too too busy binge watching, not enough capacity to be working for the good of other people. So that's the concern that Paul addressed in this paragraph. And if you guys have been around for 1 Thessalonians and all of 2 Thessalonians, this is not the first time he's brought this up. In fact, he's a little more aggressive in his posture here because he's had to call this out multiple times. And this is kind of his last shot at it. Okay, so there's, there's the big idea in the paragraph. So now we can go back to verse 6 now that we understand what, what he's writing at. In verse 6, so here's what he gets after. He says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you, here's the posture that he wants for the church, for the Christian family, towards those who are uh, busy being busy bodies and not busy about work. We want you to keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not, here's a key phrase for us, in accord with the tradition that you received from us. All right, well, what's the tradition that they had received from Paul? That should be our next question, since that's what he's teeing up for us. And we don't really have to go hunting for clues too much. It's right here in the text. The next two verses, three verses, seven to nine, will show us exactly what that tradition is. And there's a key word that he kind of bookends the tradition with. It's in verse seven, and it shows up again in verse nine. Do you see it in your Bible? It's the word imitate. So here's the tradition that he gave, and the reason they lived in the way that we're about to see is so that this young, look, these were brand new Christians. This is first generation Christianity. There's nothing being handed down from their parents. So they're being adopted into God's family, rescued from rebellion out of a decadent culture like our own in in the West, out of a self-centered, self-serving, leisure-driven um, leisure pursuing culture that devalues work. Now, and we don't know why work was devalued here. Lots of scholars like to speculate. It could have just been a social thing like it is for us in the West, a cultural thing. Like they're 23 and 33, still living in mom's basement, playing video games, right? Probably the same kind of similar dynamic. Some theologians like to speculate because we've heard a lot about the return of Christ in these letters that they had a misunderstanding about Jesus' return. And remember a couple weeks ago, we saw it addressed like they had received a letter saying that Jesus had already returned. And so their world was just upside down, perhaps. So why work, right? That's a possibility too. But I don't think it was theological. I don't think it had to do with Jesus' return. I just think their culture was a lot like ours and work was misunderstood and devalued and 
rather than living for God's fame and the good of others, like us in the West, they were just consumed with the next pleasurable experience. Work was a means to an end to just simply have fun, right? I, I really think that was going on. So here's the tradition, here's the Christian ethic handed down from Paul. Verse 7, you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. How do we imitate them? Uh, we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. I like verse 8. That's kind of one of another good, uh, it's a good reminder of how context matters. Like when you're studying the Bible, words around words matter a lot. Uh, so I've heard people say, like, uh, nor did we eat bread. Like, wow, there's, there's the verse you need as a keto person. Like, Paul, Paul didn't eat bread. And he said, no, like, no, we didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it. And a keto person in the room, because I know there are a whole bunch of you who are like, yeah, go ahead and eat your bread. You will pay for it, right? <laughs> but that's not what he's saying. Um, no, also, you got to be careful reading this. He's not reject, what's Christian culture supposed to be known for? Generous hospitality, giving, receiving each other into our homes, and sharing meals. So there's not a biblical principle here that kind of allows you to be a jerk in somebody else's home and like refuse to accept the kindness of another person's meal. That's also what he's not saying. He's simply saying, uh, when we were with you, we didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it, meaning we did not take advantage of the beautiful culture of generosity that the gospel had created in your family. Instead of taking advantage of it, we wanted to be contributors to it. That's what he says. With toil and labor, we worked night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. So Paul's view here is, Rather than being a burden, we're going to position ourselves to be a blessing to this culture of generosity by contributing to it through our own hard work, work is good, for the good of others and for God's fame. And, and that's exactly what he says in verse 9. Look, he says, it's not because we didn't have that right. They had the right as apostles, as early church planners and leaders. They could have, Paul could have rolled into town and said, look, I've got to spend all my time shepherding people, caring for people, kind of working out the systems and structures for the church, planning to preach and teach and do all the counseling. I can't work a full-time job. I'm just going to need to benefit from your generosity. He had that right. But in verse 9, it says, they rejected that right, Here's, and for this one reason, to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Verse 10 says, even when we were with you, so he's going to restate the entire principle in one verse right here. And we've heard this. Uh, actually, we, we've heard merciless applications of this principle. Look at this in verse 10. Even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. How have you most often heard that kind of in American history? There's a very key word that's missing. Which word is missing? And it leads to a cold, dead, merciless application of this principle that God did not intend. Any takers? What word's missing? Willing. I've always heard it said, especially in history, if anyone does not work, wasn't that one of the early uh, colonial, what, what town was that? Jamestown? Does it even exist anymore? See, don't go whack with this principle. <laughs> if anyone is not willing, that's a really important word, willing. Christian culture should set the example. We should be outpacing culture 
in every expression of mercy and kindness and generosity towards any person in any season who doesn't have the ability to work. And it is not for us to scrutinize the, the presence of ability or the lack of ability. It may be an unseen inability. We tend to think in categories of, well, physical disability, they can't work. Guys, of all people, of all people who know we're created in the image of God, and we know the sacredness of the soul, and we know the impact of evil, we know inability is far more common outside of physical ways. It can be an emotional inability, a spiritual inability, an inability of the soul that is in a season of brokenness or recovery. It's not for us to scrutinize based on what we can see or can't see. It is for us to set the pace for a culture that is cold, to show them what a warm embrace shaped by the gospel looks like when it comes to showing mercy, right? So that, that, that word willing is so important in that, in that verse 10. Let's drop to verse 12. Paul's gonna also restate this, which he opened up with. He says, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ. For, so for those among your family who are busy bodies, they're not busy working for Jesus' fame and the good of others. We command them to do their work quietly. It doesn't mean that you can't talk, right? It's not, it, it means uh, go about your own business, put your head down, see the sacredness in your own work. Just get after your work, do your work. Stop minding the business of other people, throttle off the social media and just go to work, go to work. Do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So that, like the thought would be continued, earn your own living, so that in earning your living, two things, you do not have to live off the generosity of the Christian culture around you, which is beautiful, so that the generosity that you would otherwise receive can be freed up to be given to other persons, namely those who are unable to work, and namely those who aren't yet Christians. Let's free up as many of our resources as a family to, be, to show the most kindness to people who are not yet followers of Jesus. We can do that when we see the good in work and we each go about our own living so that we can contribute and support not only our families, but our family at large, and we can show incredible kindness and generosity towards those not in the family. Verse 14 says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. Feels aggressive, right? And then he says, have nothing to do with him that he or she may be ashamed. Look, Paul is choosing these words to help us feel the weight of what's going on here because um, the culture that was kind of creeping into this church was so antithetical to the gospel. It's so, um, so against and so opposed to it undermines the teaching of the gospel. And it, it takes what should be beautiful about Jesus' family and makes it ugly. So that when we do say gospel words, there's no weight or impact to them because the culture would just say, yeah, you say that, but we see, we see how you live. And you're honestly no different than the rest of the culture. You live the same leisure-driven life that we live. Why would we listen to what you have to say about a God or his better, more beautiful way? You live the same way we do, right? So it's, it's that weighty to Paul. But I love this in verse 15, and I love this about our family because I feel like this has long been our culture and commitment. Even in serious matters like this, look at this posture in verse 15. And this is, again, how the church is different than culture. 
do not regard that person as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Guys, if you have a professed follower of Jesus in your life that you consider an enemy, you're wrong. You're in sin. You're living contrary to how Jesus would have you live. If in your heart you have categorized certain professed followers of Jesus as an enemy to you, you're living in opposition to Jesus. Whatever the wounding is there, whatever the disagreement is there, not that those are not legitimate, that does not make that person your enemy. They are still your brother and they are still your sister. And so Jesus calls you to a certain kind of gentleness and a certain kind of restorative posture. And I have always been grateful for that in our Pillar family. I, I feel deeply that that is something that you have always gotten and that you embrace, that even in those difficult seasons, kind of a refusal to posture yourself as an enemy towards somebody and a deep commitment to posture yourself as a brother or a sister living for the good of that person and seeking restoration. All right, so there's our summary of, of this paragraph that Paul wrote about work and working for the good of others. And I want us to kind of focus in on verse 13 now. He says, as for you. So remember, remember earlier the, 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 the verse that we saw in verse 11. He said, we hear that some among you. So now he pivots here in verse 13 and he addresses the church at large. As for you, the rest of you, the most of you, the strong majority of you, you do really, really good work. Please don't grow tired in doing good. And as I leave our church family and transition to the States, when I think back about each generation of this church family, uh, these are the enduring words that will linger in my soul that you have done and are continuing to do really, really good work. And my desire for you is that you would not grow weary in continuing to do that good work. Now I say generations, um, if you're new to Pillar, we're seven years old, and in those seven years there have probably been, I would break it down roughly into five generations. The first generation we'll call Busy B, that's just the name of the school or the building right outside of Camp Foster's Legion Gate, where we planted in 2016. So we have the Busy B generation, then we have the China Pete's generation, that was the name of the business in this building right here where your kids are hanging out. And once upon a time, that was our only building and it was horrible because we tried to have these worship gatherings downstairs and there's no sound barrier between floor one and the second floor. And it was, remember when Moses came down off of Sinai and he heard the sound of warfare in the camp? That's how I felt, like every Sunday morning in that space. Not to mention the plumbing's exposed. And this was, this was honestly the best part for, anyway... So where you preach, like the plumbing drops out of the ceiling from the only bathrooms in the building, really. And because we were downstairs with that sweeping staircase you've seen, anytime anybody needed, you could see whomever it was leave. And then everybody's watching their clock, and then the plumbing goes, and it interrupts the service. So that's the uh, China Pete's generation, right? Generation two. We knew each other well. <laughs> So this became the liquor store generation. This, this was a wine and spirits building. It went out of business and thankfully we won the bid and uh, were able to get this space. Uh, so the liquor store generation, generation three, then we'd roll into, I think the COVID generation. 
And again, if you're new from America and you're like, why, why does that define a generation? Look, you just have to take my word for it. COVID was different here than it was in the US, right? It just lasted longer, restrictions were crazy. And look, all the service branches are here. So here's what happened with the service branch chiefs. They all wanted to see like who was actually in control and who could outdo the other. So none of the restrictions aligned. They, they didn't align at all. And so it was like all the service branch chiefs were like these rival drug lords or warlords. <laughs> like on a turf war in Okinawa. It was insane. It was insane. So the COVID generation. Uh, we are, so when I say we are just now in the post-COVID generation, you may not believe, but really we just got out of that craziness not too long before you got here. So generation five, post-COVID. Yeah, post-COVID. And so I, I want to say uh, to you this morning, thank you for doing good work in this fifth generation. Uh, but even as I thank you, I want to I anchor you back in generation one, and I want to show you how the good work that you're doing now is so deeply connected to the good work that was done in generation one. And you, had two, you have two points of contact with them, even though you don't know their names. Uh, you receive two things from them, and I'll, I'll point those out here in a few moments. Uh, but what I would like to do is, um, man, generation one took this passage to heart. And here's what I mean. Verse 8 and verse 9 says, with toil and labor, we worked night and day. Generation 1 was a working generation. Verse 9, to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. They, they, they imitated Paul's example. They worked hard for Jesus' fame and the good of others. They built something that still exists, and you are existing within an ecosystem that, that was the building on it began seven, seven years ago. And I want to show you how you're so importantly connected to that generation. Seven years ago, there was a dream that we would be a church that was a family of servant missionaries. A dream, an idea, a vision that didn't exist yet. And by family, I mean, if you guys want to show that, by family, that we would be a, a family that welcomed others in the same way God the Father welcomes us into his family. Uh, a family of servants that we would be known for our serving posture and a family of missionaries that we would be a pursuing family, pursuing those who are not yet in God's family. So in generation one, I just want to affirm a few people. You'll know some of these, but I want to show the people that really laid the groundwork for us to be a welcoming family. And the first family is Stu and Selena Fugler. And uh, we, this just church was planted in April of 2016. That was our first public worship gathering. But what most people don't know, months before that day, Stu and Selena were the key family on island. They had been in other pillar churches, and they opened their home, and they began gathering team members who would help plant the church. They lived on McTee, uh, McTrailer Park, I think we called it back then. And um, look, I know you're busy, and I know Okinawa gives you a lot of reasons not to work. Stu, of all the people I have known in Okinawa, had the most demanding job and had every legitimate reason not to invest in the life of God's people. And you could justify it. You'd be like, yeah, I get it, while he was here. But he did the opposite. He sacrificed sleep. He sacrificed a lot of things for the good of God's family. And what I love about Stu and Selena, they opened their home. They believed what they read in Acts 2, that God's family didn't just gather on Sunday. We gather in each other's homes. We share each other's food. We read the Bible together. We pray together, and we pursue people together who are not yet in the family. They just live that out in simple, beautiful ways. And so today, Pillar is a family 
because Stu and Selena Fugler purposed that it would be a family, and they gave themselves to this, and they did good work. Stu and Selena Fugler. Also, part of that generation, next picture, this is Lukey and Allison Manns and my son Johnny, center stage, on these drums right here, these drums, the only family to have been here in generation one and leave and PCS back and do another full set and be ready to get out of here would be Kevin and Bethany. I think they'll be here in the second service. What I remember about Kevin and Bethany and Lucas and Allie is this. There was a crazy time in our life, that China Pete's where we could hardly fit anybody in there. We're like, hey, we need two services. Uh, nobody's gonna wanna get up early and come on Sunday. Let's do a Saturday night service. That's a great idea. It was a horrible idea. It was horrible. But look, Kevin and Bethany lived all the way up between Hanson and Schwab. And they would drive down on Saturday nights, these, um, even when her kids were so young and Kevin would be gone, just to serve in children's ministry. And then they would drive all the way back late Saturday night, and she would get her kids up again early Sunday morning and drive all the way down to serve and to participate in the life of the family. So guys, Pillar is a family today because Kevin and Bethany and Lucas and Allie purposed that it would be. They gave themselves to this, and they did good work. Next, Koya's and Ellis's. Um, they pretty much out, out predate all of us. And uh, this sermon could get away from me really quickly and I could say way too many words. So I need to work hard to say fewer things and just make some pointed comments. And so first to Ron, I would say, uh, Ron, you have been uh, the one in our family who has embodied what it looks like for a follower of Jesus to live as an encourager of other people and as a true friend to speak life-giving words and to be physically present and Pillar today is that kind of a family because of your presence and your good work over seven years. Christy, in the same way, you have been our, our presence of relational wisdom in that you were our first counselor in the family. You, you have led us in wisdom. You have counseled us wisely. And from you, we have learned how to care deeply for people. We're that kind of family today because of you. And to Lorna... Lorna's relational empathy has ensured, her, the stamp, her imprint on our family has ensured that we care deeply for people the way Jesus, we're a feeling church, not a thinking church alone. We have a heart and we see people who would otherwise be unseen. And that's because of Lorna. She gave herself to this and she did good work and we're that kind of family today. To Grant, who has long led us in worshiping Jesus. Uh, next picture, this is my favorite picture of Grant uh, of all time. And if you don't know who I'm talking about, I'm talking about the guy who looks like David Crowder right now. <laughs> like, while he was still active duty Air Force. Guys, most of the time he's been our lead worship pastor, essentially a full-time job. He was active duty. And just not sleeping and drinking way too many Red Bulls and caffeinated products, which we're still working on <laughs> as you sip your coffee. Uh, this was a backdrop in China Pete's that Grant etched um, these words, just as he did here, that he, he etched with whatever that tool is, skill saw, jigsaw, thanks. Um, etched them out. It's my favorite picture of Grant because I feel it embodies the gift that he has given to our family. He has etched Jesus onto our souls and into the culture of this church, and he has etched a gospel-shaped culture that's beautiful through the way he has led us in our liturgy week in and week out. And here's just a short sample size of our first worship gathering uh, song that Grant led. Jesus, 
we're a family deeply rooted in our identity in Jesus and the gospel, going all the way back to week one. Grant has given himself to this, and he has done good work for seven years. We're also a family of servants, and um, very briefly, I just want to point out four single people especially. Uh, single people matter deeply to the life of this church and our history. The first is Satomi. She would want me to show this picture. Um, <laughs> Just leave that there for a minute. Well, actually, next picture. Our real family goal was to disciple her into this way. Here's Johnny modeling how it's really done. That's, she never quite got there. Uh, I'm confident her husband, John, has helped her take that final step. Um, we met Satomi once in California through a friend of mine, Sean Kim, who was a Korean-American immigrant. He was part of an Asian Christian fellowship that Satomi was a part of. Sean knew we were coming over here to plant a church. He's like, man, Satomi should really be a part of that. He set us up with a dinner. Satomi met with us one time. At the end of a meal, I said, Satomi, I really would like to invite you to move with us to Japan. You can live in our home. So like, I kind of need to pray about that. I'm like, I don't think you do. <laughs> like, ah, it's a cult. Never mind, you know. And I'm like, yeah, you should really pray about that. But she did. And uh, just a week or two later, she said, I'm in. And she moved in with us and lived with us for a season. We eventually kicked her out because Owen was born and we needed the space. And she went and she moved with somebody else in the family. But uh, next picture, here's the picture that would honor Satomi a little bit more. There she is holding Owen after she was born. Look, Satomi moved here as a single woman, moved in with us and worked so hard. And so that you've never met her, you don't know her name, but any good that you experience in the life of the church, her fingerprints are on that good work. There was Satomi, there's Crystal Snodgrass. Crystal was from a supporting church in San Bernardino, California, studying to be a teacher. She wanted to come work. She's like, get me a teaching job in Okinawa and I will come for a year and I will just work. So we found a teaching job at Busy Bee. She came and that was, that, that was not to Crystal's career advantage or dating advantage uh, relationally. She is married now, um, but she was willing to put everything on the back burner to serve Jesus by serving us for, for so you don't know her, you've never met, met her, you don't know her name, but this family is today what it is, a family of servants because of Crystal. Uh, I also want to show you uh, briefly, this next picture is Matt uh, Moharan and Scott Harrison, and they almost single-handedly led our renovation next door so that when we worship Jesus here as a family, our children have a safe, clean space to have fun and to learn about Jesus. Uh, Matt would not want his face to be shown because he was that kind of guy who was that humble, and same with Scott. So uh, you can't see Scott, he's in the ceiling, you can't see Matt, he's bending over uh, hammering wood. Uh, real quick funny story about Scott. Uh, a Navy doctor told him he had some heart issues, some palpitations. He was out of rhythm. Uh, Scott's an electrician and has no fear, and so he did everything by hand. No meters, no gauges, anything. Just about electrocuted himself to death, uh, renovating China Pete's, but small miracle. Shocked his heart back into rhythm, and the doctor <laughs> gave him a clean bill of health. So there's that. There's that. Uh, so what's the moral there for you? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, last picture in the servant section. This is Michelle Free. Uh, Michelle in this picture embodies the servant culture of this family from that early generation. A mom of multiple kids, homeschooling at the time, a kid strapped to her, a kid helping her. It was honestly, it was, besides Matt and Scott, it was the women and the children. I wish I could show you more pictures. Who ran it. You guys exist in this space because of the good work done by a bunch of moms and their little kids. And that's beautiful. So we're a family of servants today. Last two single guys right here, Roger and Matt. Um, 
uh, John Matthews, Roger Smithy. John Matthews is kind of in the center of the group shot, green shirt in between two ladies, purple top, uh, bluish green, whatever that is, top. Um, John's in green, clearly green, okay? Guys, John and Roger were countercultural in that they chose not to pursue themselves and their own gratifications on Friday and Saturday. Rather, they lived to love Jesus and love his people and would go to bed early on a Saturday night so that as two single guys, they could be up on Sunday morning serving the children in our family. They would be here, and most Sundays you could find them working in the kids' spaces, setting the example for us. And so today, Pillar is a family of servants because of the impact of many single people. So often in churches and military culture, like this is a church for married people with kids, not here. The greatest impact any demographic has had on this church family are the single young men and women who have spent time in our church family, and Roger and John embody that. Hey, uh, real quick, it's Mother's Day. Um, how many of you have yet to pull the trigger on a Mother's Day like card or present? <laughs> just real quick. I mean, just be honest. We're in God's house. Okay, let me, let me just say something uh, to the single people especially. She doesn't want whatever you're going to do on Amazon. Like, she doesn't want that. Here's what she wants. Here, you want to bring a tear to your mom's eye. In the spirit of John and Roger, uh, go to the kiosk in the back. It's the sign-up form for children's ministry. Take like a selfie or a screenshot of you signing up for children's ministry, and I can write the note for you. Like, Mom, I was pondering your nurturing posture towards me as a child. <laughs> And it was so life-giving, I just want to give a shadow of that nurturing love to the children in my church family. That's all she wants for Mother's Day this year, right? I just did all the work for you. <laughs> Guys, we're a family of servants because these people gave themselves to that beautiful dream and did good work, and here we are. All right, family of servant missionaries, a pursuing family. Uh, skip to, to the picture. Zach and Jordan Rocco on the left. Uh, Zach was gone a lot of the time that they were stationed here. They were both active duty. Jordan was the first missionary in our family. I remember the first training we had after a busy bee service. Uh, she left and she bought food for everybody that had gathered for worship that day and paid for it personally. She brought it back. It was our first missional community training. And from that day on, Jordan never came to a family gathering in the church alone. If you knew Jordan or worked with Jordan, you somehow would become enmeshed not in an awkward come to church with me kind of way, but in a sincere relational pursuit. It was beautiful. And if I had time, I could, tell you count, I could tell you one story in particular about a couple on Kinzer who were running headlong towards brokenness and divorce and a destroyed family who are today deeply committed to each other, joyful, restored, healed, married, and growing in Jesus because of Jordan, the first missionary in the Pillar family. Moving on from Zach and Jordan, uh, John and Melissa Simberger, who moved and, uh, and joined our family and went on to uh, lead our gospel to Okinawa church planting initiative, still does, and most recently planted our first church plant, Gospel Life, down in Ginawan. Uh, also missionaries in our family. And the last missionary that I wanna highlight, this is Chicago. Seven years ago, Chicago started, she was our first childcare provider that we paid. First in a long line of, um, of women who live locally that we have paid to care well for our children. Chicago eventually began attending missional communities 
Recently, she has made a profession of faith in Jesus, and guess who's part of the core team of Gospel Life Church? Chicago. So guys, Pillar is a, is a family of servant missionaries because all of these people in generation one did good work, committed themselves to it. And now here's the connection point for us. When we participate in the life of a church, we gain two things from the people who have gone before us. We gain an inheritance and we gain an invitation. So what's the inheritance that we, that we receive? Well, my grandfather, my papa died uh, 10 years ago now, 10 years in January. But you know what lives on in my soul and is life to me every single day? You do good work, son. These people, most of them, have long since left this island. But you, when you choose to participate in the life of our family, you have an inheritance from them. You inherit the life-giving work that they did for Jesus' fame and the good of others. And you benefit from it. There's a house built. There's a family, uh, there's a family structure here. There's a gospel ecosystem that you can step into and benefit from, and it is beautiful. But we also receive an invitation. We receive an invitation to build in the same way that they built because building is necessary in every single successive generation. It matters that you build for the people who come behind you. It matters. It's sacred work. I was reading a book yesterday, and I, I never knew this. I read, I was, it was about Alexander Graham Bell, and I didn't know that his wife and his mother were both deaf. And so he had given his life to the improvement of life for deaf persons. Well, little Helen Keller, when she was six years old, her daddy heard about Alexander Graham Bell. And he brought six-year-old Helen Keller all the way up from the deep south to meet with Alexander Graham Bell. And later in her life, Helen Keller would write, my meeting, my meeting with Dr. Bell would become the doorway through which I would step from darkness into light from solitude and loneliness to relationship into love and into knowledge and into beauty. That's what she wrote about her one encounter with Dr. Bell. Guys, in the same way, God the Father, just like Helen's daddy, has plans to bring not yet rescued persons to Okinawa on PCS orders. And there will be a door that exists here. And that door will be the doorway through which these people step from darkness into light, from isolation and solitude into relationship, and from brokenness into beauty. And you, through your good work, are building that door right now. And you do really good work. And it matters that much. So please don't grow tired. And that's where I'd like to finish uh, this morning. A couple weeks ago, I joked that for my final sermon, I would preach a 30-minute sermon, do something I never did. Uh, it was a joke for anybody who heard me. Uh, we'll finish at 50 this morning, just to be consistent with who I'm, I've always been. And to give you one more reason to be glad that the transition's happening and uh, things are changing. Guys, you do really good work. That will be my enduring memory of you. you. When I look at you in the fifth generation, whether you've been here seven months, seven days, seven weeks, seven minutes, I see you in receiving the inheritance, but I also see you responding to the invitation in beautiful, life-giving ways. You're doing good work. Please don't grow tired. And that's where Paul would take us in the closing. Uh, three key words that I want you to see in the closing. Uh, peace, with, and grace. Here's how we don't grow tired as a family. 
Verse 16 says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Guys, peace is synonymous with rest. In God's family here in in Pillar, we don't work for peace. What do we see about peace and rest right here? It's a gift that God gives. We don't work for it. We work from it. So the way we ensure that we don't grow weary in doing good is we posture ourselves to receive rest and receive peace from the Father, and we reject the, the cultural, religious idea that through our good work, we get better peace and more rest from the Father. And as a family, when we invite people in, we don't invite you in to perform good works, to prove yourself. No, we invite you into a family of peace. So if you're new to Pillar, we don't want your work first. We do not want you to work. We want you to learn how to live at peace, to have a posture of rest with the Father. The word peace has the idea of wholeness in your soul. And I need you to know as a pastor, you will not gain wholeness in your soul by working for God or for other people. Work is not the pathway to your personal restoration. You need to, simply, you need to receive peace and rest from the Father. And then being a rested person, a person at peace with God the Father, you will be able to work not for it, but freely from it for the good of other people. We don't want your work first. We want you to be right and at peace with God the Father and to begin experiencing restoration in your soul, a family of peace. Uh, The next word that's important is with, the Lord be with you all. I love that word with. God's presence with his people is big from Genesis to Revelation. Um, It's the word that reminds us that the only way any of this is possible is God with us, Jesus, our Emmanuel. You know what's freeing about that? It's freeing because we can be our ordinary selves and see beautiful things happen. So here's the other thing I need you to reject as one of the pastors here if you're showing up and you're new to our family. We don't need any superhero Christians. We don't need any next level, uh, mountaintop, rock star. Like growing up in the kind of toxic youth ministry culture of the 90s, like all you ever heard was you got to be a world changer. You got to be a game changer. You got you to change the world. You got to basically be Superman. That's not the gospel at all. We are a band of misfits. That's what our family is. And we believe deeply from the gospel because of Jesus' presence, we have the freedom to show up and just be our normal, ordinary, average selves, to have average pastors preach average sermon, way too long, but average sermons, and just be the ordinary people that we are. Our confidence is not in ourselves. It's in the God who is with us. And because he's with us, we work hard to build that doorway through which a future PCSing person will step from darkness into light as they meet the Jesus who is the extraordinary one in our ordinary family, God with us. And finally, grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I wouldn't want to end my pastoral tenure with you on any other word other than grace. All of this is a gift We exist in this gospel ecosystem because of the OG worker, if you will. Jesus is the original, true and better, good worker. And because of the good work that Jesus did, we are adopted into a family that just benefits from all of his good work. And the beauty of this family is you don't work to prove your place with the Father. It's all a gift. None of us deserve to be here. You can relax. You don't have to prove your place here. You don't deserve to be here. 
Just like the guy who's talking right now. I don't deserve to be here. It is all a gift of grace. It's all a grace. It's all a gift. Jesus humbled himself, could have come as a king, but he came as a servant to give us the gift of reconciliation with the Father. And every day together is a gift from our Father. I love the word grace. It reminds us of our, our, our Christian word justification or justified. The word that simply means we're made right with God the Father. And guys, you can come and lead us in that song now if you want. We're going to sing a song that reminds us there is no work of human hands that makes us right with the Father. It's grace. And so as a working family, we don't work for rightness with God. We work from it. And together we'll stand and we'll sing with glad hearts of the grace, the kindness that God has given us. So family, my final words to you as you stand. Listen, you do really good work. Thank you for not only inheriting, but thank you for responding to the invitation in this fifth generation to build the door through which future people will walk. Thank you for doing good work. Through God's grace, presence, and peace, don't grow tired. Let's sing together.